okay. If you're a journalist who uses the tool Help a Reporter Out, or Harrow, listen up. Harrow is moving to Cision's new app, Connectively. But what is Connectively? Well, imagine a place where you can quickly connect with expert sources for your next story. Connectively is a new app from Cision that's changing the way journalists like us, content creators, experts and PRs work together. So if you're in search of credible sources, Connectively is your next stop. With just a click, you can publish your queries. These go straight to a feed where experts from loads of different backgrounds can respond, giving you their expertise. So go on, visit connectively.us to sign up for free. That's C-O-N-N-E-C-T-I-V-E-L-Y dot U-S. Connectively dot us. Hello and welcome to Freelancing for Journalists. Hello, I'm your host Lily Cantor. I'm the other one, Emma Wilkinson. Yes, so we're on to our final series of the year. It's whizzing by. Um, We've decided this series we're going to do something a little bit different again. And we are going to be looking at specialisms in freelance journalism. So each week we're going to speak to a different freelancer who has a different specialism and kind of really understand how they got into that niche and how it works for them. But, as always, we're going to start with our win of the week. So, Emma, I'm going to ask you first, what's yours? Okay, so mine is, I think this is something that we probably all come across all the time, and it's just finding case studies. And uh, it was for a feature I was doing where I needed something, somebody with a very specific new role that's uh, a job that's in the NHS. I was, like, trying to find people who had this specific job. And the usual kind of ways of contacting people wasn't really working and I was thinking oh no one's going to speak to me this isn't going to work at all and then I managed just kind of perseverance just perseverance I managed to get into a couple of networks where the people with this kind of job I won't even bore you with what it is because it's an NHS job (laughs) um we're all hanging out and then I've now got way more than I need so now I've got to write the thing but um yeah just persistence just trying different things yeah I got there in the end so Yeah. yeah That's what good. Your, well, actually, yeah, you've stolen your... mine. <laughs> oh, mine sorry. Be the same. <laughs> um, and it's actually something I wrote about in the newsletter um, back in October um, about finding um, quite a tricky set of case studies. So I won't use that one. Um, I will say my highlight is um, doing some really good interviews for a project that Emma and I are working on. Um, we've interviewed some really cool people so far. And that's been very exciting. And there was one lady in particular last week who was very, very inspiring. Um, yeah, we both fell in love with her completely, didn't we? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> she, she was, was just, absolutely great. She was great. She was so lovely as well, um, but absolutely incredible. So, yeah, I think that was my highlight speaking to her. Fantastic. That was a good one to pick. We could have both chosen each other's highlight completely yeah. then this week. Okay, so let's um, start and introduce our guest now. So this week we have with us Charlie Maloney, who's a freelance journalist and media law trainer. And as you might have guessed from that intro, Charlie's specialist beat is court reporting. 
And we have lots of questions for him about how that works when you're a freelance journalist. Yeah, I'm really excited about this one because when I was a trainee uh, reporter, I used to go to court a lot um, and I did really enjoy it, but I never kind of thought of it as something that a freelancer could do. So Charlie, good point to introduce you really. Tell us more about kind of how you got into this career of court reporting as a freelance journalist. Well, good afternoon, and thank you so much for having me on to talk about this uh, subject, which is very, very near and dear to my heart. I've been doing it for several years now. And the way I got into this was essentially I used to, my first sort of big journalism role was a business-to-business company. So the furthest thing from court reporting you could possibly have, sort of a mixture of some marketing, copywriting, and then doing some interviews with people working in the artificial intelligence in medicine space. So it's, it's quite a bit of a Sort of a weird mixture, but we've created this magazine and it was it was great work. Um, but I, I wanted to do something more more like news reporting, the kind of thing you'd see in the newspapers that I like to read. And I was doing an NCTJ part-time while I was uh, working at this B2B place. So I was doing it on Tuesday evenings and Saturdays. And when I finished it, uh, I, I got some shifts at the Daily Express because the College uh, Press Association uh, used to send around any opportunities and I was doing some express shifts but um, and as, as anyone who's worked on online news reporting may know there's a bit of being desk bound involved particularly in the early stages when you're just starting out and I was beginning to be a bit worried that if I kind of kept doing it for a few years I might come away with it uh, with never having actually left the office and possibly no exclusive stories to my name um, and I was getting a lot of bylines, but I just knew that I wanted to do something a bit more, um, a bit more original, a bit more sort of uh, on the front lines in the trenches. And then the PA sent around this other opportunity, which was an agency called INS News Agency based in Reading. I went to meet them a couple of times just to have a chat. It was a bit of a pay cut from working at the Express. You know, as anyone knows, the sort of regional agencies and regional titles pay less than national titles. Um, but I thought if it's really original going to courts, being out on the scenes of door knocks and things like that, then maybe it's going to be worth it. And I, so I asked them, you know, we, is there any rewriting involved in this job or is, is this really original journalism? One of the editors, uh, Sarah Lawrence, who was the news editor, said to me, if there's a single day that you're spending at home rewriting stories, we're losing money on you. And it actually turned out that she was telling me the truth. And I pretty much spent every day from the next three years in some court or inquest or tribunal or a civil court case. And I just wrote loads and loads of stories and did a lot of shorthand notes and even successfully challenged some reporting restrictions. And so in terms of going into freelance work at some point, I think it was just a question of asking myself, you know, uh, maybe I could do this and just take these skills that I've developed and just do it on my own. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm guessing that maybe some of that was to have the freedom and flexibility to sort of do your own thing as well, maybe. Um, but can you tell us sort of how it works practically when you're freelance? Are you um, covering a court case for a specific publication or are you just attending court, you know, looking for having that kind of news head on for angles for things that other people might not have come across? Um, yeah, it's kind of what, what does your day to day look like? 
So I, I can tell you, Emma, that the, the system that I use is in some ways very similar to the system that we used at the agency. And I have to say, I, I really can't do this interview without saying that I learned pretty much everything I knew when I started being freelance. In fact, I will say everything I knew from Neil Hyde, who was the editor at Hyde News and Pictures and, and used to be the editor at INS. He'd been a journalist for about 40 years. And it's just really that understanding of how newspapers work, the time to pitch stories, the kind of cases that you go to. And essentially the system is basically this, you know, before you go to court, you have to look at the lists and you're gonna have a certain amount of information you can see about the cases that day. You're gonna see the people's names, you're gonna see the charges they're facing. You might even see uh, the type of, well, you will see the type of hearing that it is. Is it a trial? Is it some kind of application? Or is it a sentencing hearing? Or could it just be something smaller, like a brief mention? Um, and oftentimes you can make an educated guess that a murder trial will tend to attract national interest. Although these days, not really, uh, because there are quite a few, sadly. So sometimes you're looking for something a little bit different, something that maybe the press association and other national agencies are not doing themselves, something a bit more off the beaten track. Um, and so it, it really is a question of just trying to make a judgment call um, at the start, I was just doing whatever the editor told me to do. But then eventually you start pitching your own ideas. Maybe you'll Google the name of a person and say, well, that person's actually a bit famous. Maybe they're a local counselor. Maybe there's someone who's been in the local paper for some kind of other reason, like being an award-winning doctor or something. Now you're seeing them on trial for some kind of crime. And so you think, oh, there's, there's something here. You know, this is someone who's got a bit of a profile. There's going to be potentially some interest from the readership in seeing this story. Um, and it could also be something that occurred in a hospital, so there's that public interest as well, or in a school, um, or in local government. So it's, it's, a, it's a mixture of lots of different factors, and also it's, uh, it's instinct as well to an extent. You know, you, you kind of get better at it the more you do it. And I think even since going freelance, I've been able to become, it's gotten easier the more that I've done it. Um, one of the other things that's gotten easier is that practical side of getting in touch with the publications. So let's say you do get a good story. Um, oftentimes you won't even get it published unless you understand how to approach the different outlets. And there's two different ways of doing it really. You could either say, I think this story is so good that I'm gonna try and get it done exclusively somewhere. And to do that, you need to know a reporter or an editor at one of the outlets who you can go to and ideally you could give them a call or text them and say, look, I've got this thing you want it exclusively and then they can try and put it up at conference on your behalf because you're not in the building so you can't advocate for the story and there's a lot of competing stories as well um, and if you can if it's good enough and they're willing to do that then you'll get an exclusive fee so it'll be worth your time to sort of give it to that one place if you're not really sure if it's good enough or maybe sometimes you think this is a great story but i think it's got that kind of universal uh, sort of element to it where everyone's going to want this I think I could even make more money from just putting it all around. Then we do what the agency used to do for most stories, which is you just send it to everyone on the list. And so I'm talking about, you know, Daily Express, the Daily Mail, the Times, the Guardian, the Sun, the Mirror. Nobody gets left out. The local papers, any specialist publications which could be interested. And then it's just whoever uses it, you'd send them an invoice and... Uh, Unfortunately, there's not much negotiations with national titles, you know, they really pay what they pay. But if everyone uses it, and especially if you supply pictures as well, 
then you can actually make quite a good daily rate if you get something that gets picked up in multiple places. And, and that's re that's that's really interesting that you said about pictures as well. So are you taking pictures as people are coming in and out of court or are there other pictures you're using? My main weakness as a court reporter is that I don't have, uh, I don't, I'm not a photographer. Uh, some court reporters can both do the notes and uh, write the story and do interviews and take pictures, but it's just not a skill that I have. I don't have a camera and just think the the smartphone images never look good in my opinion so it will either be mug shots that the police are providing or pictures that are taken from the internet either via social media or on publicly accessible pages or via some kind of other publicly accessible source and sometimes the people that you're reporting on they may be or even on getty images or something like that from previous sort of things they've been uh, they've been involved in uh, good or bad yeah yeah, so I guess you're doing that legwork for the organisations. You're giving them the package of the words and the pictures. Yeah, I think the phrase that the agencies use is we're supplying these as a technical service. <laughs> right. <laughs> and have you ever sort of had the situation where there's been a big court case, perhaps going on over a few days, that might have kind of national prominence and there's been a national newspaper who said can got into it and said can you go and cover this for us or is that not does that not tend to happen that does happen and it's 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 always happens on the day when i'm not available except for in the few times it hasn't so um there's the sun and the mail on sunday are usually the ones who've done that once for the sun um i don't know if you remember the case of pg pc andrew harper a police officer from Thames Valley Police who died in Reading and uh, three uh, juvenile defendants were sentenced for manslaughter uh, in relation to his death. And this was all in 2020. And one of, their, one of the defendants' dads was in court for a particular sort of armed burglary and the son wanted me to cover that. And so I don't know how they'd found out about it, uh, but they said, can you please go and do this for us? And then it's kind of a day rate, or they might give you a double shift rate if the, if the thing takes all day. Um, the Mail on Sunday once asked me to go and do this bizarre case uh, about someone. This, they've interviewed a couple in a small village whose neighbor firebombed their house over some kind of planning dispute, sort of a boundary dispute that just completely spiraled out of control. And the neighbor was kind of like a former SAS guy who had all this training. And so he sort of like dug a tunnel underground and it was just really bizarre. Uh, but of course, I wouldn't have known about that if they hadn't asked me to go and do it. Uh, but yeah, I will, I will take on commissions as well. And it's not just court, you know, I'm open to other things too, sort of door knocks and going to do any kind of journalistic legwork. And you mentioned um, you're in Reading. So is it just the Reading courts you cover or do you go further afield? I will sometimes go further afield. So the agency that I used to work for had a patch that covered Buckinghamshire, Berkshire, Sussex, Surrey, Hampshire, Hertfordshire. It was a pretty broad region. And uh, I, I can't cover that much distance because of the travel expenses, which would just be difficult to get back. So I tend to just hop on the bus, uh, go to Reading Town Centre, and I'm sort of generally wandering around for the day between Reading Coroner's Court, Reading Magistrates Court and Reading Crown Court, and just sort of seeing what goes ahead, what gets adjourned, what looks like it may be working as a story, what looks like it maybe won't. Um, but there, if I see something that looks like it's going to work on the list, or sometimes the local paper has asked me to go to places like Beaconsfield and cover a, a high profile case 
then I will go further afield. You know, I drive. Um, it's something that you had to do when you came up to Reading. Originally, I was from London uh, and I never used to drive. But when I went to Reading, I, the, the editor said, you have to have a car to be able to come out here and work. Um, and I, 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 I must have covered so many miles in that first year working at the agency. It was just relentless. And I'm guessing that often because of kind of restrictions on local news budgets, et cetera, that you will be the only journalist in a court. I mean, could you, there will, I think there's probably going to be times as well where you go, you're just kind of listening to a case and you're not quite sure what it's going to be. And then you start to hear those kind of quirky details where you think, right, okay, this is not, this is going to be something else. Is, is there something that comes to mind as being like the most surprising yes. story that you worked on? I would say so. I mean, there's there's a there's another fantastic court reporter in, in Reading, uh, G ha uh, Harland, who's is at the the Reading Chronicle, um, and but she, of course she works for the local paper, and um, she, we we may sometimes sit in on the same case. But there will sometimes be times where she's off doing something else, and I'll be in a case by myself. And I think there's the the two that sort of strike my uh, come to memory the best for that are first of all, last year when I went to a trial um, for someone called Gary Connery, who was later convicted of um, it was domestic violence charges. And during the trial, I just started hearing the, there was a lot of people talking about these sports clubs that he was involved in. And I was sitting there using my laptop, um, just kind of looking up his name. And I realized that, I don't know if you remember from the 2012 Olympics, there was this skit where the Queen and James Bond jumped out of a helicopter together um, and they sort of parachuted in this sort of Union Jack flag uh, parachute. Uh, well, the, the, the stuntman who dressed up as the Queen and jumped out of the helicopter uh, was on trial in Reading Crown Court. Um, and once I realized that he was the guy, it was one of those things where I just thought, I can't believe no one else is here. Uh, so I sold that to the Mail on Sunday as an exclusive. And then when he came to Oxford Crown Court for sentencing, I mean, it was just everywhere because the press association went. At that point, I thought they can have it. It's fine. I've, 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 I broke the story originally. So, you know, I'm not going to go and compete with like five other journalists because as freelancers, you can't do that, right? Uh, and the other case was in Reading Magistrates Court, um, I went into a particular uh, Proceeds of Crime Act hearing, which is something we never used to do at the agency because they tend to be a little bit dull, you know, sort of 150,000 pound disputes over some kind of housing fraud. It's a little bit involved. It's a little bit complex. Maybe you can't really sort of make it interesting for the reader. When I sort of sat down and hearing the, 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 the lawyer who was representing the person whose money was being seized came up to me and said, why are you at this case? This is going to be so boring. And then, of course, I knew that it was just going to be a fantastic hearing. and I had to stay. And it turned out to be a dispute over the sale of a 1.7 million pound house in China, the money which of which had been transferred via what's known as the Chinese underground banking system, which is this kind of covert way of getting money out of the People's Republic of China, which has very strict restrictions on how much money can be moved. And it all came to light in Maidenhead in Berkshire because uh, a, an entrepreneur a millionaire entrepreneur who'd come to this country to sort of further her business interests turned up to her local Lloyds bank with 85,000 pounds in cash. And the police sort of said, where did this money come from? And she said she was given it by this uh, sort of mysterious 
international Taiwanese businessman who had since fled the country after the investigation was launched. And she argued that she just wanted it because it's not unusual to have large sums of cash in China because there's a cash culture. Um, and there was this whole hearing about whether she legitimately had it or whether it come from some legal means. In the end, it was all forfeit. And the judge thought that it was uh, perhaps the proceeds of crime. Although I should say from the media law point of view, there's no allegation that she had committed any crime and she was not the subject of any criminal investigation. It was merely civil proceedings under the Proceeds of Crime Act. But it just shows you, doesn't it, that you can have those really good stories, um, yeah, kind of hidden away in the court. And that's why it's so important that, you know, justice is seen to be done and that reporters are there. And you you raise a really um, important point there about, you know, knowing your media law as well. Um, I mean, I remember, like I say, when I was a trainee and I was in court quite a lot, and I'd often, particularly in magistrates' court, be sitting there going, uh, "No, you can't do that." And the mag, and I seem to know more than the magistrates. Um, I, have you kind of been in that situation before, where you feel like perhaps you know the the law better than than some of the the, the parties in the court, and and have you challenged stuff? Yeah, so I've challenged several reporting restrictions, and I think that what I've what I've kind of uh, concluded is that um, it's 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 just that I think that it's very much on the bottom of everyone's priorities lists in court. Um, usually, particularly when the judge is there, they're just they're just so focused on getting the case done and trying to get it listed and, and getting all the witnesses in. And I think if someone, maybe the prosecution, stands up and says, "Oh, can we just make this reporting restriction?" I think there's always this, tempt this temptation just to say, uh, sure, that's fine, particularly if there's no journalist there. Um, but then, of course, when you do a law degree, there is no media law module. You know, if you're learning to just become a solicitor at a criminal law firm, you won't necessarily have ever done uh, contempt or, or, or privacy law, or these specialist reporting restrictions that we all learn about when we do a journalism diplomas or any kind of basic training at a local uh, paper. So... The, the the two that I've done as a freelancer, because we I I did a, a couple of other restrictions when I was at the agency, but as a freelancer, um, when I first went freelance the first year in 2021, I challenged a restriction that prevented the identification of a man who was actually the victim of a fraud. Uh, he was a, a millionaire tax partner who had been defrauded of two million pounds by an escort who he was um, whose businesses he was investing in, but who he had also given voluntarily one million pounds so that he could be her sugar daddy. And so there was this kind of one million pound voluntarily given for the sugar daddy agreement, but two million pounds given as a fraud via this kind of like, she, apparently she was claiming she had legitimate businesses in Dubai and um, all around the world. So when I saw that case, I just thought, it's, I had this vague memory from learning about these restrictions that you can make a, a, a witness or a victim uh, anonymous in these kinds of proceedings if they're in fear or distress of being identified. And I just thought, I have a funny feeling that this guy is not actually in fear or distress. I think he's quite understandably, in fairness, just very embarrassed to be involved in this case. He's married, he's a financial expert, accountant, and he's now, uh, you know, basically made this, I mean, putting it in the kindest way possible, an extremely unwise investment 
Um, and, you know, I think there's other ways of the judge was quite sympathetic in fairness to the defendant because she was previously earning £12,000 a year before she'd met him. She was suddenly handed £3 million. Now she's in prison with a young child whose mum is obviously inside for five years. And I just thought this is this reporting restriction has not legitimately been made. And there's a public interest in people understanding that someone who gives financial advice or at least is seen as a financial expert is potentially mismanaging their own and their own family's money. Um, and also we wouldn't properly be able to report on the conviction of someone who is a fraudster with the reporting restriction in force because we would have had to have taken out any details that could have identified the victim. So it would have just been a hampering on the reporting of the case. And the other case I did more recently was on shift for the Law Society Gazette where I regularly shift. And I turned up in the high court and there was a solicitor there who had been made anonymous in court on the basis of his privacy rights. And he was the claimant in the case. And that's very odd, isn't it? Because you think in court it's open justice. And usually the parties in a case at the very least are nameable unless they're under 18 or they're the victims of sexual offenses. And he was neither of those. So it was never really clear how he had managed to get anonymity. The case had been rumbling on for about nine years and it didn't seem like anyone could actually remember how he'd got his anonymity in the first place. So the Ministry of Justice were trying to get his anonymity lifted because he had been committing all of this misconduct during the course of the case. Um, we can only refer to him as ABX while the appeal that he may or may not lodge is pending. And um, I joined forces with them and I made some remarks in court sort of off the hoof as it were, because I'd never really seen that case until the day I turned up in it. And the judge was, uh, Mrs. Justice May was kind enough to include my remarks in her written judgment that's now uh, on the National Archives case law. And that was a big, a big leap from making submissions in the Crown Court, suddenly be almost part of the, uh, the jurisprudence really. I was very proud of that one. It shows you really need to know your stuff, doesn't it? And I think um, one of the things that strikes me when you're covering court cases like this is they can be really complex and loads of twists and turns and different and different bits. And I know you'll be really practiced at this now, but I wonder if you've got any advice on how to kind of think what's the best way into this? What's the best angle when you're kind of immersed in a really complex case? And are you kind of thinking in your mind as well this would work for this newspaper yes that's definitely right you have to have an idea of the outlet and you have to remember as well that there is genuinely a sort of uh, there's a degree that there's a allowed um sort of degree of uh, how, how to put this there's this kind of allowed leeway that's been identified in, in court cases for journalists and editors to rearrange the facts of a particular case and shorten it and to use their editorial judgment and to write articles that they think people are going to want to read and that their, you know, their audience is going to be interested in in an engaging way. And if you've spent three days writing you know, a whole shorthand notebook worth of information down in a really complicated NHS inquest, it's very easy to lose sight of that sometimes. But you have to really just hone in on, if I was reading what may just boil down to 150 words in a national newspaper somewhere, what might just catch my eye? 
and 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 of course you you do have to you do have to be accurate for all kinds of reasons and and there can be legal consequences if you're not but you you can't possibly hope to capture every sort of tiny nuance in a case but you know the more you go on you can get better at trying to reflect some of the sort of really interesting elements but i think you have to just be really honest with with yourself about what is the strongest line here i remember very early on when I was working at the agency, I went to court for a hearing that the editor had asked me to go to. And while I was there, I sat in on this other case. Um, it was a case involving several juveniles who were alleged of having attacked a man in the city center. And it, it essentially turned out that there was evidence which suggested that they may have actually been acting in self-defense. And I remember coming back to the office and I told them about the case I'd been asked to go and see. And I kind of spoke to the news editor and said that there was this other case, you know, and it was just, it just really interested me um, for all kinds of reasons. But she sort of said, look, um, I think you should, you should go and follow that case in the future. Uh, and the reason is simply just because that's the one that really interested you. That's the one that you found interesting to sort of observe. And I think if you kind of follow what you find interesting, you'll tend to find interesting cases that other people would be interested in as well. You know, don't feel obliged to always say, well, I've got to cover the murder trial because, you know, sometimes you know sometimes from a news reporting point of view you just need to be thinking what what do you what would you want to know more about yeah absolutely and i think i can still remember during work experience um my first ever work experience as a journalist i i hadn't even fully finished my entity j or anything and i was at the doncaster free press and i went uh, I had nothing to do in the newsroom. I was sat there and I was like, can I go to court? And they were like, well, there's nothing list, you know, listed that's interesting. I was like, well, let me go anyway and just see. Um, and I did. And I came back with about three stories just because <laughs> I sat in court and stuff came up that I don't know that they'd missed or wasn't quite what they expected. Um, and they, you know, they published a couple of them. But so you kind of never really know you know what you're going to get I remember there was one about a guy that had a was just kind of walking around with a knuckle duster and he'd attack someone with a knuckle and I was like what's knuckle duster oh. I was like oh isn't that in that movie snatch yeah. I was just kind of intrigued about that um so yeah it's definitely I can see how kind of going with your gut um can be a really good way to get get you know those kind of stories that you that are unexpected well, you know and, the, the well sorry I, just one other thing i would add is that sometimes judges come up with things as well you know I've yeah been in the case where the judge just was trying to list this trial it was if you looked at the list you'd never have thought this would be interesting but during while the judge was trying to list his trial he realized that it was going to take so long to list this case that he had to cancel his holiday and he just said i'm just going to cancel my leave and to get this trial done because these mm. guys are in custody and that was just a small thing, but it made multiple national newspapers just judge cancels leave so that defendants don't have to wait in custody for trial. You just think like, you're never going to know if that's just going to happen. Yeah. It's slightly falling apart. <laughs> as, <laughs> as we've all seen. And so you're kind of in some ways witnessing that, uh, that decline. And yeah. Dramatic things happening in court every day because of the state of the criminal justice system. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I wanted to pick up on something you, you mentioned earlier, we were talking about kind of pages and pages of shorthand notes so is that kind of what you rely on now to to record and and like how quick is your shorthand 
Okay, well, I'm going to tell you that my shorthand is 120 words per minute. I've got the certificate, but I don't know if it's still quite that fast. So, okay, officially 120, but it may, it may be still. Um, I do a lot of shorthand, um, and that's not actually limited to court. I mean, I was doing interviews for just another sort of featurey thing I'm doing, and I was just at, at the desk, and I just did it in shorthand. It was just easier. I was in a room with other people. I didn't want to just play audio out loud and record it and it's just so quick to take it off the notepad and write it up. Um, I'm very used to my own shorthand now. I, you know, I'm very, I, I, I'm able to go back through shorthand notebooks that are years old and figure out what they say. So it possibly doesn't, it possibly would be uh, not very enjoyable for my original shorthand tutor to, to look at how I've bent and broken the rules that I originally learned, but I've created definitely uh, a version of shorthand that I can read and I can do it pretty quickly. And I mean, there's always a, 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 any any time you're talking to people who are doing court reporting, you, you can all share sort of horror stories of uh, having gotten the best line in the court hearing and sort of reading your shorthand back and just being sort of thinking, well, I'm sure that that's what that says. <laughs> but you have to, and this is true, not just of shorthand, but this is true of so many things when you're court reporting, um, you have to trust yourself because you are the only one who was there in court and saw and heard everything. And so the editor is actually completely blind if you get something wrong. You know, it's not like the sub-editor can go and do some fact-checking online and check whether you got it right. You know, you are the sole source of authority of whether what you heard actually happened um, and whether you missed anything important. So believing that you understood what you witnessed is, is vital if you're going to be able to actually get things published. Yeah. And I I wonder with that then, because it it might sound quite intimidating for somebody who's perhaps starting out or who's interested in court reporting. What what would your advice be? I don't want to make it sound too intimidating, but I don't want to make it sound like you can just waltz into it either, because I think the, the consequences of getting things wrong can just be so severe that it's not something you should ever go into just thinking that you can you cannot sort of take it very very seriously which you must and and particularly as even if you don't suffer any legal consequences you're often writing about people in the very worst moments of their lives and the impact on them of getting things wrong it just it's it, at the very least i can say that i think that i've reflected what's happened to people i've written about properly and i've not just sort of mischaracterized it um but I, my advice to people who are looking into this would just be go to court. Um, if, you're, if you have any suspicion that you may be interested in being a court reporter or going down that route and, and you think you might want to develop the knowledge and the skills that you'd need to do it, um, I would advise you to just wander down to any court, be it county courts, um, criminal courts, coroner's court. You have the right to go and sit in on any court hearing that you like. Um, and if anyone tells you you're not allowed to, it may be because it's a youth court or family court hearing, in which case they're right. Otherwise, you just say, look, we've got the right to be here. It's open justice. And just watch and just see if it's the kind of thing you could imagine yourself doing sort of day after day after day. And for some people, they're just going to think, I can't think of anything worse. And for some people, they might think, well, a lot of what I'm seeing is really harrowing. And a lot of times, you know, it could be sort of, maybe a little bit sort of dry and legalistic, but there's something to this that makes me want to come back. And if you think if you feel that way, then, then it 
could definitely be something you'd like to do more of. Yeah, that's good advice, isn't it? Just to kind of um, see, I suppose, if it's something that really does get your senses tingling and just to kind of think, oh, there's a, there's a story here. I want to learn more about this kind of there's just, you know, all walks of human life will be there. Um, you get to see everything. No day is ever going to be the same. Um, so, yeah, you've given us such a good insight there, Charlie, into into your work as a court reporter. Um, thank you so much for that. Before we sign off, we'd like to get your recommendation on a piece of work by a, a freelance journalist. Have you got have you got one that you can uh, share with everyone? I do indeed. And, you know, I've thought very carefully about uh, what that could be. Um, but I think I'm going to have to say. Um, that it's Louise Tickle, who's a very well-known freelance reporter who, who is best known for covering the family courts. And uh, this month, a judgment has been released um, with, called Louise Tickle and Father, Mother and XX, uh, which is a family court case where she challenged a reporting restriction um, or a decision of a, a family court judge to prevent her from reporting certain details from a family court case and she's won this appeal in the high court where the judge essentially said that the judge's decision to prevent her reporting the very limited amount of information she wanted to report was uh, was an interference with her her right to freedom of expression and was was unjustified and and that the judge had made this decision um wrongly essentially and and she's done that all by herself She's not got any outlet that essentially has done this appeal for her. She's gone in um, and she, uh, I believe, has had uh, representation. She's, she's a barrister, um, but she often, I've, I've met her before in the Court of Appeal, and she often makes uh, representations by herself. She made representations in the family court to try and prevent it from reaching this stage. Uh, but I just think that it's, it's such a good example for freelancers to see someone who's so well established as a freelancer sort of leading the charge and fighting for open justice and fighting for transparency and kind of doing the hard graft that enables other outlets and other national and local outlets to sort of find out all the information they need to to write stories yeah absolutely because it'd be so easy to just kind of give up and not bother wouldn't it especially as a freelance um so that yeah that's a brilliant uh shout out i've made a note of that and we'll um we'll dig that out and put that in our show notes thank you very much well i think we're gonna wrap up now aren't we emma we are yep yeah that's been a fantastic chat thanks ever so much charlie so really much appreciate that um, so yeah, we've got more episodes to come on different specialisms, so keep an eye out for one that might uh, interest you. Um, if you want to find out more about Freelancing for Journalists, you can visit our website, freelancingforjournalists.com, or check out our newsletter on Substack. Yes, and we're also over on Facebook. Uh, you can join our community there, ask lots of questions. Um, also on Twitter, at Freelancing4, and I'm there as at Lily Cantor. And I'm at Emma Journo. Um, so yeah, until next time. Oh, we should also say before we forget, because she's been doing excellent work, especially with the YouTube videos. Um, we really appreciate her doing that. Big thanks to our producer, Maddie Drury. Yes, thank you very much, Maddie. And we'll be back next week with another specialism. Ugh, I can say it. Specialism. <laughs> Goodbye for now. Bye. <laughs>